Hello and welcome to Asia In-Depth. I'm Matt Schiavenza. Less than a decade ago, in the wake of the Arab Spring, it was fashionable to predict that technology would empower individuals to overcome authoritarian governments around the world. Today, such views seem hopelessly outdated, and nowhere is a better example than China. In recent years, the Chinese government has subjected the Muslim population in Xinjiang, a vast territory in the country's west, to severe restrictions and an unprecedented degree of surveillance. Relations between the Chinese Communist Party and the Uyghurs, Xinjiang's largest Muslim group, have long been uneasy, and China claims its policy in Xinjiang is necessary to prevent terrorism. But what makes the current crackdown particularly insidious is China's use of surveillance technology. From facial recognition software to spyware installed on cell phones, the Chinese government is now able to restrict individual freedom with ruthless efficiency. Mega Rajagopalan, an international correspondent for BuzzFeed News, has written extensively about the intersection of world affairs, government, and technology. Long based in Beijing, she reported numerous stories from Xinjiang before being forced to leave China by the Chinese government. She has also reported on the role of Twitter in the Arab Spring and on Facebook's influence in Myanmar and Cambodia. Mega was recently chosen as a member of Asia 21, a select group of young leaders from across the Asia-Pacific and representing a wide range of professions. I recently caught up with Mega in San Francisco on the sidelines of this year's Asia 21 Summit. Mega, thank you for being here with us. We're happy to have you. And um, looking at, at the work that you've done for BuzzFeed um, in the last couple of years, if I were to describe your beat, it seems like you cover the intersection of world news and world affairs with technology. Um, what uh, drew you to this? Why were you attracted to, to this as a subject matter? I've been writing about technology sort of on and off um, since probably about 2010. Um, you know, I started writing about it sort of pre-Snowden and in the kind of um, the zeitgeist of that era got very interested in issues around digital privacy. Um, obviously, as a China reporter, it's sort of impossible to escape that sort of that sort of stuff because um, the, the government's use of technology, um, you know, in, in sort of all sorts of ways um, is such a kind of newsworthy subject. It's something that pops up again and again um, in the news and, um, you know, in the context of what's happening um, to the Uyghur minority in, in Xinjiang. Um, I think it's sort of been a, um, a kind of core, core facet of that story. What What is going on in Xinjiang, more or less? Who are the Uyghurs? And what is the Chinese government doing uh, at the moment there? Xinjiang is this huge region in western China. Um, it's called East Turkestan by, um, you know, many people who are seeking various levels of independence for that region. Um, and it is home to some 22 million people, more or less. 11 million of those are Uyghurs. Um, and there are other minority groups there. Um, there's ethnic Kazakhs, Uzbeks, there's Hui Muslims, uh, a few other minority groups. Um, that region has been um, sort of the, the site of periodic unrest, um, you know, for the past couple of decades. Um, there have been race riots, there have been um, terrorist attacks and stuff like that. But when we talk about the current situation in Xinjiang, um, I think uh, the kind of like the, the origin, of the, the most recent kind of era in Xinjiang um, can be dated back to probably about 2016 or 2017. So at that point, the government um, basically started implementing this kind of 
wide-ranging set of policies that is meant to sort of repress and remake the culture of Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities there. Um, and there's kind of two that like that set of policies can be grouped into um, two subcategories. So one is uh, mass surveillance. Um, so the surveillance apparatus in Xinjiang is basically a, a marriage of kind of traditional heavy-handed human policing and um, all kinds of like new surveillance technology, um, stuff like facial recognition technology, um, the use of algorithms to target people and detain them, um, things like iris scans, uh, DNA collection that's most likely done by force, um, you know, all kinds of things like that. And then you have the second um, aspect of the government's uh, kind of set of policies targeting Uyghurs, which is um, essentially mass incarceration outside of the justice system. Um, so the government has built these massive um, camps, um, internment camps, all throughout the region. A lot of them are in cities, sort of places um, with population centers. Some of them are outside of cities. Um, and what they've done is like they've they've targeted um, Muslim minorities and they're um, interning them based on um, UN estimates and estimates by independent scholars. Um, the total population of people that have been put in these camps is something around a million. So if you think about 11 million people and you have an, a, a million of those um, in this kind of incarceration. And like outside of the camp system, um, you have an additional population of something like a million people that are just in, in prisons that have been in, in prison through the criminal justice system. And if you think about the way criminal justice works in China, um, there is no separation of powers. Uh, the courts are completely controlled by the ruling Communist Party. Um, so it's, it's, not, it's generally like, I mean, it's, it's not seen as like sort of a genuine or like a, a, a cannibal sort of path to justice and um the kind of uh that that's that's even even more so when we're talking about ethnic minorities particularly a group that the government has uh sort of characterized as a threat to its stability or or restive in some way um so that's sort of the the broad strokes of what's happening in Xinjiang um in my opinion it is one of the uh the worst human rights crises in the world um, it is an attempt by one of the world's most powerful authoritarian governments to erase and remake the culture of um, some 11 million people. And it is essentially a form of collective justice um, against an ethnic group for um, the actions of a very small handful that have al already sort of been brought to justice through the criminal justice process. Do you think that in Xinjiang, it, was it a matter that this was something that the government has wanted to do for a long time and now they have the technological capability of, of executing it? Or is it something that when the technological capability came along, they thought, well, we can, we can sort of, we can make this happen? Um, so when we're talking about kind of the broad history of um, mass atrocities targeting ethnic minority groups, um, tech, like technology has always sort of been a feature of that. Um, you know, if you look back at the Nazis, like obviously um, they, they were like very well known for um, using databases and, and kind of collecting data about what they were doing in a very systematic way. Um, if you look at Rwanda, for instance, the Rwandan genocide, um, you know, a big feature of that was the way that um, they used mass media to essentially incite people to violence. Uh, if you look at the Rah 
Rohingya genocide, um, you know, a, a big part of that has been, uh, again, the use of propaganda, um, in this case, social media, as well as traditional forms of propaganda. Um, so I think um, technology has this ability to sort of enable governments, especially very powerful governments, to um, carry out um, these sorts of campaigns in, in a kind of a more efficient way. Um, you know, whether the Chinese government wanted to incarcerate Uyghurs on a massive scale before this happened, um, I don't know. I mean, this in terms of scale, this is this um, sort of far outpaces what we've seen in the past. But of course, um, arbitrary imprisonment of Uyghurs is nothing new. Um, this has been happening for a very long time. Um, you know, in, in Tibet, of course, like we've also seen the use of extrajudicial incarceration. Uh, we've seen the system of uh, re-education through labor, which is um, sort of a, a euphemistic term uh, for a another extrajudicial imprisonment system that has occasionally targeted people like human rights activists, all, with, all the way down to like petty criminals and, and uh, sex workers and things like that. Um, so this is not necessarily a new thing in China. Um, that being said, I think the, the kind of significance of the technological element in Xinjiang is that it has enabled the government to sort of build profiles of people that it consider, uh, sorry, build profiles of people that it considers to be a threat. Uh, so Maya Wong at Human Rights Watch has done some really groundbreaking research on this. Um, Human Rights Watch, uh, basically, they found this app that um, the police in, and other authorities in Xinjiang were using to build profiles of people. And it, it's it's absolutely insane like how they found it. They literally heard about the app from a source. They went onto the Android app store, and it was there, and they downloaded it. And they were able to reverse engineer this app, and they found that um, the purpose of the app was to draw, like, all kinds of like incredibly like sort of minute detailed information about people. Things like, you know, whether they had any relatives who lived abroad, like whether they they had left their town, what kind of phone they were using, like whether it was a smartphone. If you weren't using a smartphone, that could be a source of suspicion. Um, you know, of course, their, their religious practices, um, you know, even their electricity usage, like all of these things go into these profiles of people. And um, they found that the government is sort of using all of this information to sort of decide who gets incarcerated and who doesn't. Um, and even now, like within Xinjiang, there's sort of different levels of, um, you know, of being held, right? Like I've interviewed people that have been held for a period of something like, you know, six months or 13 months. There are people who are let go. There are people who are elderly, sort of above the age of 65 or 67, who uh, may be going to camps, but they're permitted to return home. Um, you know, I've been to checkpoints where the police said, everybody get off the bus, except for the people who are above 65, because we don't consider you a threat, no matter what ethnicity you are. So like, there's all these variables that go into the system. It's an incredibly complicated system because of how many people we're talking about. And the fact that um, you have to create, from the government's perspective, you have to create a sort of unified policy across this very um, kind of geographically vast region uh, with lots of different cities and lots of different kind of interests. Um, I think that the technology in this case has sort of allowed them to, to, to synergize it in that way. Um, you know, and I think in China, when you talk about anything, um, you know, like there, there's a lot of sort of chaos built into the system that you can't necessarily see. So by that, I mean, like local officials often in practice have leeway to deviate from official policies. Um, in for the Uyghur issue in particular, you can see that um, in, you know, sort of the, the stories that people tell about some of this stuff. Like, for instance, um, one of the features of living in Xinjiang as a Uyghur is that it's really, really hard to get official documents and passports right now are 
almost impossible to get if you're a Uyghur. Like, essentially, they, the government went through this period where they, they seized everyone's passport, and they, by and large, have not given them back. So when you're outside of China, you basically don't really meet Uyghurs anymore that have left more than probably a year and a half ago. It's, like, very, very rare, which means, by the way, that the information that we get out of Xinjiang is quite delayed. Um, but anyway, that being said, there was a sort of this interim period where it was very difficult to get a passport, but you could get one if you paid like a phenomenal amount of money to some corrupt official. And I've been told that sort of internal travel also works that way too. Um, obviously, like, as I said, like you get, um, you know, you can get marked down or somebody will, will notice in some way if you travel outside of your town to a different town. But if you, um, and you may not even be permitted to do that, but if you're willing to pay a bribe, you can um, have that level of mobility. Um, so yeah, in, in, all of those ways, I think technology um, has enabled the government to um, sort of make that system more efficient and like probably more transparent sort of in an internal way. If we're talking about, um, you know, the, the relations between the Han and the Uyghur and, and the PRC and its Uyghur minority and its Tibetan minority have been strained pretty much since the formation of the PRC. And would you say that the campaign in, in Xinjiang, is it merely a policy of making Uyghurs essentially Han, making Tibetans essentially Han, and in other words, eroding their identity as we as separate from Chinese, or is it sort of a template or for how the Chinese government wants to surveil and to control all of Chinese society, regardless of ethnicity? It's a difficult question. Um, I think it's possible that it's both to different degrees. Um, so to your, your kind of second point, like, are these surveillance controls going to be implemented throughout the country? Um, I think that the thing that has been most shocking to me about what's happening in Xinjiang is how visible it is um, and how much you can sort of physically feel that presence of surveillance. Um, you know, I've traveled in North Korea. I reported in Myanmar before it was opened up. Like I've, you know, I've worked in Egypt. Like I've never felt anything like that. Like where you walk down the street and you can feel how tense people are because they know that the the things that they're doing are being watched or being listened to either by cameras or by police officers. Um, and I just don't think that that's a sustainable system. People cannot live like this, right? Like I, I just cannot imagine that, um, Ordinary people in China who are not part of an ethnic minority group that's sort of been historically repressed or are not people like, you know, human rights activists or other people who have sort of willingly taken on sensitive roles um, would be willing to live in those circumstances. Like, um, so I guess sort of from an intensity standpoint, I sort of doubt that the rest of China is ever going to look the way that Xinjiang has or that Xinjiang does, I should say, um, you know, sort of famously the government uh, for several months after um after the race riots in Xinjiang, shut, essentially shut down the internet there. And I think at the time, everyone thought like, oh my gosh, like this is going to be what the future is in, in China. This was, I think this was nearly 10 years ago. And um, that has, to my knowledge, has not really happened elsewhere in China, other than maybe Tibet. Um, but like, uh, so I mean, that, that there's sort of a precedent for that. Um, but that being said, a lot of the surveillance technology that we saw sort of being tested or, or used first in Xinjiang is now being really widely used elsewhere in China. So the really obvious one is facial recognition. You can now see facial recognition in like any train station, lots of street corners and stuff like that. Um, you know, surveillance of people's social media activities um, clearly being used on a wide scale. 
Um, so these kinds of like less obvious, less sort of targeted, um, less invasive forms of surveillance, I think, um, are being used in a pretty, um, pretty wide way. Um, you can see that in the way that children are being treated right now in Xinjiang. Um, there are like so many stories of children being taken away from families. You'll have situations where um, both of the parents have been taken to a camp or um, they've been separated in some other way, like one of the family members has gone abroad, or like the, the mother has gone abroad, the father has gone abroad, or um, they've, they've, you know, gone to prison, or like something else has happened, and the children are left alone. And what ends up happening is that some of these children are then taken to state-run orphanages. And um, I'll just share an anecdote. I met this guy in Turkey um, who had fled China. Um, he's a Uyghur. Um, he had fled sort of before the current campaign, left his son behind and and his wife as well and it's a very common experience like because within Xinjiang you are essentially penalized for any contact with the outside world uh you know people are detained simply for making phone calls to relatives who live in the outside world and Turkey is a particular kind of place of suspicion for the government because um there are so many uh sort of independence Uyghur independence activists that have been living in Turkey like essentially you know dating back to the 50s and 60s and also because Uyghurs sort of share a kind of common culture and history with Turkish people and Turkish people are, are like very deeply sympathetic to the Uyghur cause um so as a result of all of this this guy essentially had lost contact with his son like had not spoken to his um you know six or seven year old son in something like two or three years. And um, he had this crazy experience where one day he was essentially like, he was he was like at brunch or lunch or something. He was like hanging out at a restaurant with some friends. And, you know, like you do, he was sort of screwing around on his phone. And he was playing around on TikTok. And Uyghurs who live abroad really love TikTok because I believe on TikTok you can sort of search videos by location. And when you can't go back to your homeland, you kind of want to see what it looks like. So he was doing that. Um, and he looked up his hometown. And to his surprise, somebody had posted this video of his son. It was a user that he had no idea who this person was. And the video was like this one minute TikTok video of his son essentially in a school-like atmosphere being asked questions in, in Mandarin Chinese, um, stuff like, what's your name? How old are you? And then I think he asked like, oh, like, do you love the Communist Party? And then the video ended. And um, like he was devastated like and when i saw him the day that i saw him we ended up spending the entire day together um and like met some other people and like he kept playing the video and playing the video and it was like it was like this only like piece of information that he could get about his son um and like i think that um the thing that was upsetting about that is is first of all that the question was being asked in chinese second of all like he's lost contact with his son right so it's like you know like there's so many things that happen when you lose touch with your children, but like, you know, if, if you feel that they're being reprogrammed in some way to be something different, that's like a, a very devastating thing. Um, but like, I think from a lot of stories like that, it's, it's quite clear that what's happening to children in the region is that they're sort of being forbidden from learning their own language, learning their own culture, and sort of being forced to assimilate to the Han major majority in that way. 
We're going to take a short break here and talk about newsletters. You may not know this, but every Tuesday, Asia Society sends out a newsletter that tells you what's going on in Asia through our people, programs, and initiatives. You can find out about the latest in the U.S.-China trade war, for instance, or watch videos of our cultural performances and discussions. Be sure to subscribe at asiasociety.org slash enews. That's asiasociety.org slash e-n-e-w-s. And now let's get back to my conversation with Mega Rajagopalan. So to what extent is is what China's doing in Xinjiang and also elsewhere with, with big data, with surveillance, with, with population control, to what extent is that being exported and that other authoritarian governments around the world are looking at what's going on in China and saying, maybe this would work for our rest of minorities, maybe this would work for our religious extremists, um, I think it's 100% clear that um, Chinese tech companies are, are seeking to export surveillance technology. Um, so I'll just give an example. So I was at a um, an AI conference that was written, or sorry, I was at an AI conference that was run by the government of Dubai, um, like the city of Dubai, I believe, um, earlier this year. And um, there was there were a bunch of tech execs there, um, you know, some of which were from China and some of which were not. Um, and there was a, an executive from Hikvision, which um, is the world's largest maker of surveillance ca- uh, cameras. Um, it is known um, also for having outfitted some of the internment camps in Xinjiang with its cameras. Um, and he made a very interesting speech. Um, he basically was pitching this, um, this audience of Investors and tech executives and government officials from across the Persian Gulf on um, the merits of Hikvision's products, not just the hardware, the cameras, but also the kind of the facial recognition, the um, the crowd recognition, all of the kind of video analytics that um, lay on top of high quality camera footage. And he basically made this pitch that China is a place um, where he said the um, the crime rates are very low, and he attributed this directly to the density of cameras relative to the population. Um, And he didn't talk specifically about Xinjiang, but it's sort of, to me, like, you know, a lot of people when they, at least in my experience, like when they talk about China, even in the United States, like the narrative always tends towards one of stability, right? Like there's this perception that China is this country that is like incredibly stable because it's run by this um, this group of technocrats. Um, there's not this kind of like chaotic um, back and forth exchange of ideas that um, you commonly see in democracies, right? Of all sorts. Um, and I think like that pitch sort of plays right into that. Um, and of course, it is true that crime rates in China are comparatively low, although obviously the police doesn't don't really release crime statistics. So it's sort of hard to tell. Um, but, you know, um, but like uh, I think um, I think certainly like we've seen lots of research to show that Chinese made surveillance systems or various stripes are being used in lots of different parts of the world, Um, you know, ranging from Cambodia to Ecuador, um, Zimbabwe, um, Egypt, like all kinds of different types of countries that are using these Chinese made um, systems. Um, I will add, though, that um, I think that there's like this, there's the narrative in the US that um, China has created this brand of uh, techno-authoritarianism, and they're exporting it all over the world. And I don't, 
I think there's there's truth to that, but I think it's also important to acknowledge that what we're talking about here is Chinese style surveillance um, or Xinjiang style surveillance or even authoritarian style surveillance and not Chinese made surveillance. The fact that it's made in China um, is not necessarily the problem, right? Like because you have lots of American companies and lots of companies from other places, from Japan, from Israel, uh, from the EU that are making the same kind of technology and they're exporting it in exactly the same way. And the kind of like core problem, the core thread that runs through all of this is lack of regulation. Right. So like when you're thinking about some, just take facial recognition technology as an example. Right. The current debate that we're having about FRT, like here in the U.S., is not really in, you know, I mean, I guess like it's changing a bit because there are now a number of cities that have essentially banned it for use of uh, for use by the police, um, although I believe private companies can still use it. Um, but you know, the, the debate is really more about bias and algorithms, you know, at which fundamentally is a question of like, how can we make these algorithms better, right? How can we make them recognize, uh, you know, black faces as well as white faces or Asian faces or whatever? Um, it's, it's not about whether it's a fundamental kind of violation of your right to not be searched um, to have facial recognition cameras everywhere, right, in public spaces. Um, but when you look at a context like China, um, racial discrimination in this in these algorithms is not a bug; it's a feature. That's what it's designed to do, right? Like we have companies in China that are advertising their abilities to tell the difference between people based on their race. So, I mean, it shows that, like, you know, like the the technology is being built and made a lot better and exported, kind of way before anybody in the world has had a really like serious conversation about how it should be regulated, um, you know, what should be permissible and like, you know, not like which is already like a conversation that is far more fundamental than something like export controls or something like that. So you're based now in Tel Aviv and eight, eight years ago, uh, or I guess nine years ago now, we had the beginning of the Arab Spring in Tunisia and that spread very quickly in Libya and Egypt and elsewhere. Um, and this, this occurred two years after the Green Revolution in Iran inspired hope that through Twitter and other tools, would um, populations that are under authoritarian governments would be empowered to democratize. And I think looking back in 2019, a lot of those hopes have been uh, very much misplaced, to say the least. Um, so why do you think this the pendulum has shifted from social media companies like Facebook and Twitter being hailed as these tools for democratization and and personal empowerment to now where they're under an enormous amount of, of um, controversy for for being tools used by by authoritarian systems to repress their populations? How did that kind of pendulum turn? Um, I think it's you know like as always like the reality is probably more complex you know they've these platforms have always been both you know um but i think sort of speaking in broad strokes i think one of the shifts that i've noticed is that authoritarian governments have just gotten a lot better at figuring out these platforms so essentially you have um in cambodia what you have is um at at this point you have a a pretty authoritarian system but um there's sort of a a a semi-long history of um like elections of sort of 
varying freedom. Um, you have a prime minister named Hun Sen who is um, who has been in power for um, you know for several decades, um, and what happened in 2013 is that they had an election in Cambodia, and um, the opposition in Cambodia essentially had a few people who were sort of below the age of 35 that were um, doing a lot of interesting work like campaigning and stuff like that. And they figured out that there was this new thing called Facebook that a lot of people were using and were using to get their news, essentially. So the opposition basically came up with this uh, part of their campaign strategy, not their whole campaign strategy, was to, to sort of leverage Facebook to get their message out and stuff like that. And the opposition actually, they didn't win, but they performed pretty well in that election. And um, so after that, Hun Sen's people were like, I guess we should figure out this Facebook thing. So what happened was Hun Sen essentially recruited this guy. He was a, he was a Cambodian who had lived overseas here in the United States actually for, for quite a while and had worked in tech. And um, he recruited that guy to essentially be his Facebook minister. And um, they like, you know, together they sort of hired this team. They won't say how big the team is, um, but they hired a team to figure out Facebook and not only to build Hun Sen's profile on Facebook, uh, but to essentially monitor what Cambodians were saying about the government um, in a really like widespread sort of systematic way that goes down to kind of the, the village level. Um, and Hun Sen now is actually the third most uh, popular, I believe, uh, world leader on Facebook based on one study in the world, in the world. The first two are Donald Trump and Narendra Modi. So think about how crazy that is. Like Hun Sen is writing in Khmer, right? Like Khmer has how many speakers? Like versus like like Modi is obviously uh, leads a huge country, and, and Donald Trump is Donald Trump. Um, so it sort of speaks to like how much work they've done, they've put in into um, sort of elevating their Facebook presence, and like how much how significant they think that is. Um, and then you have the flip side where um, you know now Cambodians are being arrested for stuff they say on Facebook. And it's hard to know how many people have have really been arrested because it's sort there's sort of a spectrum, right? It's like you say something and then somebody will call you and warn you, like, you better delete this or like you shouldn't have said that, um, you know, ranging all the way to actual arrests and like people spending time in prison. And this is a dynamic that has been mirrored sort of in lots of different places. Um, I took a trip to Egypt recently and uh, talked about the kind of significance of social media. So we just, or they just had protests, right, in Egypt a couple of months ago. And um, something that was significant about those protests is that people were actually tweeting about them, but nobody on Twitter was saying, oh, let's go meet in Tucker Square, right, or, or some other kind of central location. Nobody was using uh, at least public social media platforms to plan the protests. Now, whether they were using things like WhatsApp groups and stuff like that, I don't know. Um, but like, you know, what's clear is that Everybody is sort of cognizant that um, the government is monitoring these platforms in some way. So I think in that way, um, like leaders of authoritarian governments have become a lot more conscious about how to use these platforms. They've sort of caught up to um, what in, I guess, in the, the kind of 2012, 2011 era was uh, a much more like kind of grassroots driven um use of those platforms and they've learned how to um, sort of police dissent on the platforms and then also use them to uh, put forth their own messages and um, you know spread disinformation that sort of thing do um, the people who 
own these companies, the Facebooks, the, the YouTubes, and these platforms, do they have a responsibility to tackle these issues? These are not simple issues. They're very, very complicated. And um, I think it's it's a tough thing from the perspective of somebody like Mark Zuckerberg, right? Like, Facebook is a, it's a company. It's supposed to make money by getting more users, right? That's what Facebook is. But in in a lot of places around the world, like, you know, like Myanmar is the, the very obvious example. It's essentially a, you know, a, a private company that um, is functioning as, as like a public utility. Um, in Myanmar, Facebook is essentially more or less interchangeable with the Internet. You know, I have uh, I have a friend who runs digital trainings in Myanmar, and one of the exercises that she asks, asks people to do is sort of find out a piece of information. Like, you know, what is the capital of Arizona? And she found that the people that she trained, they would either put it into Facebook's search bar or they would like message a friend that they thought was smart and ask them using Facebook Messenger. What they wouldn't do was Google it, right? So um, in that kind of situation, like your responsibility for the social good like becomes so much higher. But Myanmar is not like a huge market for Facebook, right? And the same is true for like all kinds of places where Facebook has been linked to communal violence, like everywhere from Sri Lanka to South Sudan. Um, so it's a real quandary for Facebook. Like what, what is sort of their, um, their institutional responsibility for some of these issues? Um, I do think that there's sort of consensus that Facebook could take some pretty simple measures that would just require a level of investment. And they haven't done that to be honest, like, um, you know, the very obvious thing is hire more content moderators that are proficient in um, languages with not very many speakers. So um, Sinhala is the really obvious one, right, in Sri Lanka, like, um, Facebook won't say how many moderators they have, there's just like sort of rumors. Um, The fact that they won't say is already a problem, I think, because it's sort of a lack of transparency. Um, you know, uh, there's other things they could do, like, you know, liaise more closely with civil society groups that are sort of monitoring things like, um, you know, hate speech and, and that sort of thing in um, many different parts of the world. Um, I know that Facebook sort of is trying to do that and seems to have made efforts to do that. But there's there are a lot of questions about whether the people at Facebook that are taking these meetings are sufficiently empowered to make the kind of organizational changes that many, um, you know, advocates within civil society groups would like. Um, it's, I think it's a, it's sort of a broad question of what, you know, what do we want social media platforms to be? You know, do we want them? Like what, what kind of, what kind of role do we want them to take in essentially regulating speech, which is what we're asking them to do? Um, you know, what does that say about the future of the internet or like the, the free and open internet um, that we once thought of as sort of a default? Thank you for listening to Asia In Depth. To learn more, check out our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast, and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. And if you have an extra moment and like what you've heard, please be sure to leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps. We're going to take a break from the news next week and bring you a conversation about meditation and mindfulness with ABC News anchor Dan Harris and Thupten Jinpa, the translator for the Dalai Lama. Here's a sneak peek. I think the point is not about whether compassion meditation works. I think the point is how does it work and what needs to be combined with it. That's the problem. The point I'm trying to make is that sometimes people believe that the meditation is the panacea. If you close your your eyes and then sit there, something will happen. But what is more important, particularly 
unlike mindfulness, for compassion-type meditation, even when you close your eyes and meditate, if you're doing compassion meditation, you are actually doing relational exercise. I'm Matt Schiavenza. See you next time.